Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 14. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying verses 1 through 14. So here John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So with that, let's pray. Oh Lord, through the word of Christ, we do pray that you would do the work of God in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. I find it uh, remarkable that when Jesus was on his way to all that the cross would be, he remained focused on caring after you and me. The spirit of the cross was in Jesus before Jesus was on the cross. Though he was troubled in soul, his concern was to relieve our troubles. Not for a moment did his greatest travail deter him from looking after us. Amazing, remarkable. Uh, It seems inevitable that the Christian heart will be troubled in this world. There are, after all, troubling things in this world. Uh, The call of Christ in following after him is, as you know, to take up a cross, which would seem to indicate that we're going to have troubles along the way. It also the need then for some solid ground to steady our marching after Him. And having a sense of this, we do one of two things. We either succumb to our soul troubles, or we may search for certain coping mechanisms like a vacation, sabbatical, pharmaceuticals, uh, more psychological counseling. Maybe it's just bowls of ice cream, binge-watching old episode. Friends, maybe, which may all have a place, though watching anything like Friends probably shouldn't. But my concern is whether, for a settling of our hearts, we're looking primarily and steadily to Jesus. He's ever looking after us, Are we enduringly looking to Him? When it comes to the troubles located in a place, by the way, no human remedy can touch. Ignorance, specifically of Christ, is not bliss. It's spiritual negligence. Following Jesus comes with troubles, comes with crosses. And Jesus alone is especially able to meet those troubles, such that if we intend to live for Christ faithfully, we're going to have to know Christ increasingly well. That's why he says to troubled Christian hearts, I think we can say, let not your hearts be troubled. And now as he follow that up, basically, believe in me. Believe in me. That's not a call to conversion. That's a call to comfort. It's a call to believers in Christ to believe more and better in Christ. So our peace in Christ is the point of the passage. So let's come to it and think further. Verse 1, on the troubled Christian heart. I don't know if you've been there, uh, but one way or another... Uh, There's been a miscarriage. Uh, A loved one has died. Uh, A dream's been shot. A life's been broken. Labors have been abortive. Uh, To a depth of sorrow that when asked your state, how are you doing? The best that you can muster is something like as good as a sinner can be who's not going to hell, praise God, but is going through 
what seems like some earthly iteration of hell. The troubled Christian heart. We have examples of it in Scripture. Over and over again, we recall the histories of Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Elijah, Lord, who's left? Job, Jeremiah, go read Lamentations. And as we do, we're met by the question, is this okay? Am I supposed to be troubled like this? Can I be troubled in heart like this and not be sinning? And the quick answer to that is, yes, absolutely. Jesus' soul, we've seen a few times now, was greatly troubled, and yet we know that Jesus committed no sin. So yes, yes, there will be occasions in this world where the Christian heart will be and should be greatly troubled. Uh, If you've been here long enough to have heard our preaching through Job, I believe it was a couple of summers ago now, uh, you may remember we gave some time to rebutting a Christian triumphalism that does not allow the Christian heart to grieve and lament things that are really grievous and lamentable. We saw that Christian lamentation is often actually the initial step to recovering one's Christian hope. So, this morning, if you need to hear that, your heart is allowed to be troubled over troubling things. You've just heard an allowance. Certainly one of those things, at least initially, would be a felt distancing between Jesus and ourselves. Do we ever live there? Jesus has a clear sense, much to our comfort, I think, of his disciples' discomfort. He knows when they're troubled. Why are these disciples troubled? I mean, I think we can say several things. They love him, and he's about to leave them. They've come to depend on Him for everything, and He's about to depart from them. They forfeited their lives for Him, and He's about to die. They've been devoted to Him, and He's about to be betrayed, and then He's going to be maligned, and then He's ultimately going to be crucified, and He's going to be made out to be an imposter to God. They've bought into His preaching. They've bought into His ministry. They've bought into His purpose. And might not His removal from the world in the way that He's about to be put out of it, might not that signal that everything that they've done has been all for naught? What was the point of all this? And then, will there not be trials? Even if His life beyond the tomb Be granted, will they not, without seeing His face anymore, face trials of doubt and perplexity and spiritual swoons and loneliness and miscarriages in their ministry to say nothing of the rack and the whip and the sword and the arena and the cross for some of them. There will be good reasons for the Christian heart to be sorely troubled. But now a different question. Is it good and profitable for the Christian heart to stay troubled? Even if at the onset there were good reasons. 
Or I think we can just ask, what does Jesus think about that? I think the answer is really clear in verse 1. In the fact that He seeks to relieve their hearts. You see that? He seeks to calm the storm that's inside of them. Let not your hearts be troubled. So, we can grant that the Christian heart can be reasonably troubled while also exhorting it, as Jesus does, not to stay troubled, but to seek for their troubles a cure. To seek for the troubled Christian heart its truest remedy such that we are then enabled to go on in the Christian life faithfully and hopefully and bravely and joyfully and peaceably for Jesus. So, let's come then to the urgent remedy of Jesus for the troubled Christian heart. It's really one thing and then several things. Like one great pharmacy with several aisles of medicine, or one great prescription with, upon further examination, a handful of curative ingredients or properties belonging to it. At one level, it's all rather simple. Let not your hearts be troubled, he's said. And now he urges them, you believe in God, what? Believe also in me. So, the remedy of Christ for our troubled Christian hearts is more faith in Jesus. Or to tease out what's there and throughout our text is to continue to develop a faith in Jesus as the very self-disclosure of God for us. It's to give ourselves, we might say, to growing a distinctly Christian, distinctly Christian faith. Look at it again. Jesus doesn't just say, believe in God. Full stop. What does he add? Believe also in me. If he had left it at believe in God, listen now, the majority of the world might think that they have a remedy. But he doesn't leave it there. He adds something, and what he adds sets apart Christianity and its remedy for its troubled souls from the rest of the world. Again, believe also in me. So he puts faith in him on the level with faith in God. In fact, the point he's presupposing is that true faith in God is faith in whom? Jesus. And true faith in Jesus is absolutely faith in God. Because Jesus is God's own self-disclosure to the world. To jump back and forward at the same time, the only God has made Himself decidedly known in Jesus Christ. The Son has manifest the Father. What that means so far in our text is that for our troubles, you and I actually know God. Like really. In our troubles, we're not needing to feel around in the dark for a remedy that regardless cannot calm our spiritual tempests. No, in our troubles, the light is operative. It's operating. 
The switch has been flipped to on. We can walk into the pharmacy of Jesus and get a firm grip on the heart and character and purpose and promises of God. The urgent remedy of Christ for the troubled Christian heart is really simply Christ. It's taking to heart for every troubling occasion all that God's revealed for us by Jesus. It's believers coming to believe more and better about Him, which, with the rest of our time, we just want to begin to examine more closely. Okay? So one thing and then several things. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, he goes on to then parse out that particular remedy. He tells us exactly how believe also in me is effectively peace be still in the midst of our troubles. And the first issue of remedial faith, we might say, is him, in him, is believing that he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. So in verse 2, he tells them, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go, that's what they're troubled about, his departure, that I go to prepare a place for you. Dear ones, listen. That he is out of our sight does not mean that we are ever out of his mind or plan or preparations. In fact, we need to feel that the reason Jesus departed this world is because there is another world he longed to make hospitable to you and me. Do you hear him here asserting the fact of heaven? He says God has a really big house. Big enough for all the redeemed. Again, we like to point out in Revelation 7, that's a number that's way more than we can count. And we know that Jesus doesn't lie. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have told us. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have come into this world from that one. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have gone to prepare a place for us. His departure to the cross and then the grave, the things that he's about to endure, that is not an exercise in futility. That again is an exercise in hospitality. The end is not non-existence. It's the greatest existence in a most definite place with the most glorious host. Let that hit you. Let it comfort you. Christ has gone ahead to make the house of God our everlasting home. He's left our sight that we might inevitably see and be with God forever. Though we have, listen, we have zero claim upon that in ourselves. And though that's the case, there is yet a room with a view with your name upon it, signed, as it were, in the permanent ink of the blood of Christ. 
let not your hearts be troubled. However, out of place we are in this world for him, we have a place with God because of him. He has not left us homeless. No matter our troubles, no matter the variations of circumstance and providence in our lives, he's made us a most stable home with God. No matter our times, that's our future, and we think we can say that's even our eternity. And to further that idea, he would go on and say, believe also that I'm returning to take you there. I'm returning to take you home. Look at verse 3. He adds, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where, these are amazing words, that where I am you may be also. So his departure from us is not a forever goodbye. It is not as if he's gone and ready to place for us and done it all in vain. If you're like me, uh, you greatly enjoy the reunion of loved ones long separated. Uh, I find immense delight and a lot of tears usually in videos of, say, a husband and a wife separated by a lengthy and often treacherous deployment, being safely united again. There's something of Christian substance in that. Right? Christ will not be without his bride. So he's departed us. He will return for us. No doubt his deployment was not only life-threatening, but life-taking. Or as no one could take his life from him, it was life-forfeiting, life-giving. But in that act, Christ conquered. He gained our victory over sin and death and hell so that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus will come again that we may fully, both body and soul, inherit a place that He, and He alone could, ready for us. As He's overcome the grave, this reunion is secure. Whatever our troubles in this world, still, our final resting place is always going to be glory. It's where He is. That's where we're going. That's where He's going to take us. So just hear the voice of God, beloved, in this word of Jesus. Let it be a lighthouse for you that's sort of peeking over the breakers in your life. Christ went to prepare a place for you, and He will return to take you there. You know, I find it a, a rule in my heart, at least, that when troubles in the now begin to swell with agitation... I've no doubt lost sight of the eternity that Christ has won for me. The port of heaven puts the troubles of earth in divine perspective. It tells us this, this is not forever. That a new creation is coming. That we will see Jesus where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more crying, no more troubles ever, where faith will have its great reward. 
to go on and move to a third idea of this remedial faith. What if, what if we should then lose our way along the way? What if we should lose our way along the way? What if for a time the world distracts us from the way? What if difficulties jade us to the way? What if skeptics confuse us about it? What if doubt darkens the way? What if sin or self-righteousness blind us to the way? What if enemies oppose us and they make us want to cower back from the way and suddenly we just find ourselves disoriented? It is a gift of Christ we find in verse 4. For just such occasions, he tells them, despite what they're about to say, you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is far kinder in his estimation of us than we are of ourselves and others. Uh, Grace incarnate gives the benefit of the doubt, speaks a better word than we actually do deserve. We can learn from that. And we need to learn from this. Jesus wants them to believe, to trust. They really do know the way to God. Now, we wouldn't immediately know that they know the way, would we? You see Thomas in verse 5? Lord, we do not know where you're going. (laughs) How how can we know the way? Uh, At least he's honest uh, and rational. It's hard to know how to get to place if you're ignorant of the address, right? He'd like a MapQuest app or a cell phone with satellite capabilities. Lord, can you help us out? Indeed he can. Which brings us to verse 6. Jesus answers Thomas. Those great words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. Sometimes you need to stop right there. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then you feel that better. I recall when I had first become a Christian, I got into a discussion with a dear family member. Uh, They were a long-professing Christian, and they were a member of probably a more ecumenical church. And uh, nothing agitated them more than my insistence on John 14, 6 and the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus as the one and only way for sinners to gain saving and eternal access to God. And that is how we most often use this verse, isn't it? Evangelistically, which is absolutely inappropriate use of the verse. Right? If you're unbelieving this morning, you need to give these words of Jesus a very, very attentive audience with your heart. He's very clear. God is holy, but people are sinners. And our sin has put us out from God. It's exiled us from God. Though we were made for abiding joy, abiding like everlasting joy in His presence, sin has put us out from God, no exceptions. 
We're all born lost and held in a lie by spiritual death. Way, truth, life. We are all born lost and held in a lie by spiritual death. Such that even if a way was made for us, we would rather kill it than take it. Which validates the judgment of God that is awaiting us unless we take the way God has given for the salvation of sinners. Fact is, an exception is made for anyone who comes to God through Jesus Christ. God Himself sent Christ into the world to be the way back to God. So you mustn't be wiser than God. You must not think that you are wiser than grace. What we all needed to be reconciled to God was not anything that we as sinners could ever, ever, ever provide for ourselves. What it was, was the sinless Son of God to be vindicated in resurrection, laying down His life on the cross as a fully atoning sacrifice for your sins. That is gloriously it. Jesus is the truth. He's the revelation of God to us. Jesus is also the life. He is the source of vital living union to God. Raise you from the dead. And so Jesus is the way. He is the path of access to God. If you would come to God, you must receive the life that Jesus offers you by trusting in Him. He's the only Savior of sinners. Well, that doesn't seem very generous, Brian. Says those who neither know God nor their sin nor the imminency of their eternal danger. That God in time-confounding mercy has provided a way of salvation is more than enough for those who are aware of their situation. If hell is barreling down on me and I know it, I'm aware of it, I know this, I won't care a lick why there aren't more escape routes. I just be simply overjoyed that I'm not trapped. That someone has come to me and made a way to real safety for ruined sinners like me. And that someone is God by way of Jesus. And so if you have not yet believed in Christ, won't you do that? There is a way. Let's understand something here. This verse, which is usually applied appropriately for the conversion of unbelievers, is actually meant to be applied first, how? For the comfort of believers. Did you know that? Jesus wants his disciples, that's who he's talking to, Jesus wants his disciples to believe that in a hotly contested age of unavoidably religious plurality, if 
anyone actually knows the way to God, who is it? Them. What? Wow. In knowing Jesus, they're alive to God. They do actually believe the truth of God. They've actually taken the way to God. By grace, God has become their Father. How do you think that comforted them when Jesus was crucified by both monotheistic Israel and polytheistic Rome? They know the way. How do you think that comforted them when they were persecuted to death for Jesus? They know the way. He is the way. We're dying for the way. <laughs> How do you think that comforted them when they had bouts themselves with temptations and insecurities and doubts? <laughs> Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says, in knowing me, you do know the way to God. And more than that, and fourth, picking up in verse 7, in knowing me, believe. You don't just know the way to God. You know God. To know me, he says, is to know my Father also. From now on, let it be known as it were, you do know him and have seen him. And then, of course, we love Philip. Philip speaks up, verse 8, and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us, to which Jesus responds, as no mere man can. Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? My, how we are so often the cause of our own troubles, aren't we? I was listening to a podcast a while back. The host had asked a guy named Paul Washer. You familiar with that name? Paul Washer? You should get familiar with that name. Good brother. He was asking Paul about any regrets he had having been a Christian missionary so long. And uh, Washer answered. He said, well, you'd think... Having known Christ and handled the word as I have, I'd be further along than I am. Perhaps Philip can say the same. How about you and I? As Jesus reproves Philip here, might he also reprove us? Have I been with you, insert your name, have I been with you, y'all, so long and y'all still don't know me as you ought to know me. You're not further along. Here's the truth, beloved. Sometimes troubled hearts stay troubled, not because we don't know him, but because we think we know him better than we do. We think we know him well enough, only not to the degree that we could and must if, if the storms in us would be more immediately and divinely stilled. My own heart has met me right there this week, over and over again. How can we, know? I mean, we're 14 chapters in at this point, right? We're 13 and a half. How can we know the Christ of John and still be so easily troubled? 
Christ is the Almighty. And He loves us. You see, He says to Philip, Do you not believe? He says the same thing to us. Do you not believe? Verse 10, That I am in the Father and that the Father also is in me. So, because Philip asked to see the Father, (laughs) incredibly, Jesus can go on to tell Philip how He has made the Father visible. Verse 11, The words that I say to you, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me. There's the remedy again. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So, the Father works through the words of Jesus, which are His own words. In all Jesus says and does, the Father is manifest. God is seen. More to the point, it's revealed by Jesus' ministry then that Jesus is Himself what? Divine. Philip, water into wine and all this stuff. That was all meant to assure you the God you want to see is seen where? In me. Philip, the God you want to see more than that is me. How might that meet us in our troubles? Well, with where he's pushing, I think we're meant to look at specific events along the timeline of John, along the timeline of Jesus' life, like the banquet in the wilderness. Or even just the the ministry of Jesus on the whole and rest assured that in Jesus we have all that we need for participating in His life, His discipleship, His ministry with almighty resources and expectations. I've heard it said before that our issue as Christians is that we're content to live well below the resources we have in Jesus. Jesus means to cure that here. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. In me you have God on your side. I'm not a slave of circumstance. I'm the sovereign over them. There is no trouble, no sorrow, no temptation, no situation, no task however overwhelming to us, but you have me for it. You want solace in your several sorrows? Go stare at the dawn of creation. Go sit on the shore of the Red Sea. Go stand by the wall of Jericho. Go wade in the waters upon which Jesus walked. 
Go sit at the foot of the cross where the impossible is accomplished. Go kneel by the empty tomb and see if the peace of God will not rush over your soul and satisfy you and encourage you and make you hopeful in God. Oh my. Final matter then of this remedial faith. They're to believe Jesus still acts greatly through prayer. It's related, right? You see in verses 12 to 14 how Jesus connects this faith to prayerful utility. So he says, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do (laughs) and and greater works than these will he do. They're troubled that he's leaving them, right? He's departing. Greater works than these will he do because I am staying. No, because I'm going to the Father. The idea is obviously not that we're going to put on an even greater banquet in the desert. The idea is not even so much a contrast between Jesus' works and our works as it is a contrast between Jesus' works while on earth and Jesus' works through us now that He's in heaven. And probably related mainly to the global advance of the gospel Go read the book of Acts that follows. But what we're mostly meant to observe is what Jesus identifies as the main activity so that all our activity is endowed with His activity. And that is God-glorifying, Christ-believing Prayer. The thing at 940, that's on purpose. Sorry, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we pray at 940. 940 to 1010, come and be a part of it with us. If they are troubled that they're to go on for Jesus without his visible presence and power, he reminds them and assures them they do not go on without his interceding presence and almighty power. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Beloved, our prayers on earth are heard at the throne of God. His departure may have changed the communication, but it hasn't cut off the communication. If anything, Jesus ushers a challenge to us here. You see, our tendency is to hear this promise, and what do we do? We immediately want to temper it. Oh, it can't be everything. we got to temper that thing and rein it in. When in this text, in this text, Jesus does very little And why not? Why doesn't he temper it? Because again, Jesus knows our problem is not usually that we ask too much. (laughs) Uh, 
not even that we ask too little, but that we little ask at all. We have not because really we ask not. And so in the frame of gospel ministry, Jesus challenges what? Our believing. He challenges our ministry. He challenges any contentment that we might have with middling results. He challenges the self-pity that would often follow from middling results by challenging us to pray. Dear ones, I will not pretend to stand here and tell you what our Lord may or may not be pleased to do. I will only say it is assuredly more than we ever think to ask with persistence. There's a reason the apostles were devoted first to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They at least were convinced that by prayer, this kind of prayer, Jesus Himself continued to do His mighty works in the world. Do we have a living Christ? Isn't that the comfort from it? Right? I've wrestled in ministry to the point of despair. And almost always, almost always when I've forgotten that Jesus hasn't left me to my own meager resources. On one particular occasion, Jenny gave me unfading counsel. I'll never forget it. She said, honey, Jesus never intended you to bear the weight of His ministry. That's this. I cannot save one soul. I cannot resurrect one heart. I cannot unstop ears. I cannot open eyes. I can't soften hearts. I can't sanctify anyone. I cannot assure anyone. Honestly, I cannot really comfort anyone and neither can you. But Jesus can and will through you. That's His ministry. And what a balm for our troubled hearts to know we can leave our labors to a promise like this. Ask, 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 and I will do it. Church, let's believe in Jesus. Let's believe more and better about Jesus. Believe He's gone to prepare a place for us to which He's going to return to take us, and that in between we do know the way that He is God and that He hears and answers prayer. So let not your hearts be troubled. Instead, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and thank you. As we prayed at the beginning, so now take the word of Christ and do the work of God in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.